Revelation chapter 20 begins by saying, And I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years and cast him into the pit the, the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal upon him that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years should be fulfilled and after that he must be loosed a little season and I saw thrones and they that sat on them and judgment was given unto them and I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. But the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death hath no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. And then verse 7 says, When the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his place. So, we have this picture brought before us. You know, it's interesting. It builds right upon chapter 19. When John wrote, he didn't write with a chapter break there. It's a conjunction. And I saw an angel come down from heaven. So it's built right on the picture of Christ descending with the armies of heaven, with us, white horses, multitudes upon multitudes descending, coming back. He takes the false prophet and the Antichrist and casts them into Gehenna. And he defeats the armies that have been gathered against them. And somewhere he touches down. You know, we've heard about that horse three times, remarkably. He must be some horse that he's on. He's finally fulfilled his purpose from eternity. Uh, All human horses are just shoddy copies of this one and uh, when when the Lord gets off the horses he turned around and grabbed him and said good boy good boy you did good you know just Maximus or whatever you know uh, and then certain things have to take place he's going to inaugurate his kingdom there's going to be the judgment of the nations and it has to be real to us look we live in a world that one of their Monikers is if if God's a God of love, how can this happen? If God's a God of love, why is there sex trafficking? If God's a God of love, why are there starving children? If God's a God of love, why is there war? If God's a God of love, then why is this happening? Why is that happening? You know, you and I are praying, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. He taught us to pray that way. But the world around us is looking for utopia, looking for paradise, looking for this whole circumstance, this whole culture to evolve 
and to become more perfect, to become just. You know, the world's looking for peace. The world's looking to the UN. They would stop that if they knew it meant United Nations, because there's none of that going on. They're looking for a new world order, because they haven't seen any order in the world. Globalism. But the problem with the new world order and globalism is, and again, I can understand people that are saying, look, we we got to pull together the nations of the world or we're going to fry each other with nuclear weapons. we got to pull together or there's always going to be starving people. we got to pull together, there's going to be inequity. The problem is, is that when the world pulls together, a human being is going to be in charge. And it will always lend itself to tyranny. You know, Adolf Hitler was setting up the Third Reich, the thousand-year reign. You know, this is the real thousand-year reign here. But there's always tyranny at the head of any human endeavor. The world's, you know, longing for peace and a world where there's no prejudice and no hatred and no war. It's not wrong to long for those things. So they have peace talks. They have the roadmap to the Middle East peace. They have all of these things going on, but can't find what they're looking for. We have to understand that the world that we are living in is not an abandoned world. You and I know that. This world is not abandoned because the king is coming, the Lord of lords and the king of kings. He's coming to restore and to fix and to set up a kingdom. This king of kings and Lord of lords we met in chapter 19. When he comes, they're going to put up a big sign that says, under new management. We're looking forward to that, aren't we? Before any of this takes place, there first has to be, the first order of things is the binding of the enemy, before there can be any peace. Christ returns, Armageddon, then Satan is bound, then the judgment of the nations, Matthew 25 takes place, we'll look more at that next week probably, and then the kingdom age begins. John sees this sequence of events here. He's going to say four times in this chapter, I saw. Three times in the last chapter, I saw. If you read through from chapter 19 on, we're hearing him say, I saw. Each one suggests a chronological event that happens next. And so many times we have the word and. Almost every every verse as you go through it says and, add. It's, It's being added to. This chapter begins with and, and it's added to the fact that Christ has returned. He has taken the Antichrist and the false prophet, cast them into Gehenna. He has defeated the armies of the Antichrist, and now he's going to deal with the enemy. So there was no break in thought as these things were written. And it begins by saying to us, and I saw, I perceived, he tells us here, an angel, take note of that, one angel, coming down is in the present tense. I saw him actually descending, coming down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. 
And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years and cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up that he should deceive the nations no more. And he set a seal on him. So we have this remarkable picture taking place. Here is... Satan described, that old serpent, the devil, the deceiver. You want to be perfectly clear about who we're talking about here. He has to be bound. I'm assuming that principalities and powers are bound with him. It doesn't specifically say that here, but it kind of points us to that in other places. He had led the nations in rebellion through the history of man from the Garden of Eden all of these kingdoms that Babylon, the great whore, had ridden upon, led by him. We come to this scene here, and it tells us that an angel, this mighty one, Satan, who tried to make himself equal with God, an angel, a single angel, takes him, lays hold on him, and casts him into the abyss. Not Michael, not Gabriel, Timmy, <laughs> Harold, you know, Bud, you know, just just an angel, because God is in charge. See, he's the omnipotent one. The, the enemy has no power when he's making his moves. And notice he doesn't cast him into the lake of fire. He puts him in the abyss for a thousand years because that's going to suit his purpose. We'll talk about that next week. Then he lets him go, lets him loose for a little while. So he is put into this bottomless pit. It says he's chained. Now, those chains, that chain is literal, but it isn't physical. Look, we have this written in the book of Jude. It tells us this. It says... And the angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness. Second Peter tells us this, where he says, For God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to Tartarus, hell, and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment. So here there's some chain. It's not a physical chain, but it is a literal chain. Physical chain couldn't chain a spirit or an angel. But this is a literal chain. It was forged in the fires of Mordor, no doubt. You know, this, this, is, a, this is a literal chain that's effective and Satan is chained, and then he's cast into the bottomless pit. And again, the only place you can have a bottomless pit is in the center of a sphere, because then every way is up. There's only ceiling. There's no bottom. And so is there a place in the center of the earth? I don't want to go there and find out. But in the center of a sphere and a gravitational field and so forth, there well could be. He's cast into that place, it tells us, and he's chained there. I'm so thankful for that. And then it says this, he's bound for a thousand years 
And in that place, that bottomless pit, it says he's sealed. There's kind of an irony to that in some ways. Now, he's got to sit down there for a thousand years and think about what's behind him and what's ahead of him. Think about what's behind him, how he led Adam and Eve in his own rebellion, how he fell, how he thought, thought he was ruling the nations, how he thought he was going to rebel against Christ at Armageddon and have victory. He's sitting down there stewing, no doubt. And he knows when he's released, he's going to see the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings face to face. He has no power. And he's sealed there. It's the same word that's used in Matthew 27 when Pilate said to the Jews, go on, put him in the tomb. You have a watch. Seal it as good as you can. And Satan was there when Christ was on the cross, no doubt, or the hordes of darkness. We know that from Psalm 22. And they put his body in that tomb and they sealed it. <laughs> a little good that did. In three days he was up and around. And an angel came from heaven and rolled that seal away. Nobody can roll this seal away here as we look at this. It tells us in chapter 7, 144,000 are sealed so that the Antichrist and the Great Tribulation has no effect on them. That seal can't be removed. In chapter 10, these are all the same word. In chapter 10, it says, John says, I was about to write, and the angel said, don't write those things. The seventh thunder said, seal them up. And we all want to break that seal and find out what he said. We can't break that. Tells us this in 1 Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians, I'm sorry, chapter 1. It says, Now he which establishes us with you in Christ hath anointed us is God, who also sealed us and given the earnest of the Spirit into our hearts. Same word. God has sealed us. In Ephesians chapter 1, it says, In whom ye also trusted, after that you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, after that you believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Same word. Then it tells us in chapter 4 of Ephesians, Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you are sealed unto the day of redemption. Point being, that is the same word. And if Satan can't break this seal for, two, for, for, for a thousand years, he can't do that. Neither can he break the seal that's on you and I. He can't do that. He doesn't have access to us. You and I are sealed by the same God with the same seal that it says he's sealed with. And Christians love to blame everything on the devil, don't they? Well, the devil made me do it. The devil made me do this. He made me eat two hoagies instead of one, you know. The, the devil made me cut the guy out in traffic. The devil made me do this. I heard a voice. No, no. Look, if you're a born-again Christian, you're indwelt by the Holy Ghost, the eternal, omnipotent, omniscient, ever-present God. And he's not into time-sharing. He's not going to have company in there. The Bible says the evil one comes, he touches us not. Certainly you and I can compromise. Certainly you and I can put ourselves in a position where we need to be chastened by the Lord because he loves us. But Satan has no access to us because we're under the blood. We're indwelt with the Holy Spirit. And God has sealed us to the day of redemption. We're, gonna, we're going to get to this kingdom. We're going to get there. 
We're going to hear the trumpet blow. We're going to be caught up off the face of the earth. The enemy can't stop any of that. We are sealed. So that's the great thing about watching him get sealed here. He can't get out. He stews down there for a thousand years. And, and again, God has a purpose in putting him in the bottomless pit, which has a door, you know, instead of sending him into Gehenna, the outer darkness where it burns forever and forever. It tells us here in this picture here, the tribulation ends, Satan is bound, the nations will be judged, but it starts to mention a thousand years, a thousand years, six times it says a thousand years in the first seven verses. So look, it's remarkable to me when I think about that, you know, we hear of Chileism, that's because our Greek word here for a thousand is Chilean. Uh, if you're a Chileism or Chileist, you believe in a thousand year reign of Christ. The Latin is mil, thousand, annum, years. Millennium is a thousand years from the Latin. You know, the church is divided over this, sadly, as we look at it, but there's a thousand years put in front of us. Look, six times it says a thousand years. And next week, we'll talk, you know, the only two people inhabiting the earth then are mortals and immortals. We will be of the immortals, by the way. The church has divided over it because as, the, as different denominations developed, as the Roman Catholic Church developed, they wanted to take the priesthood and make it for today. They wanted to take the kingdom from Israel and put it into the church. So you have one group, millennium means no, the prefix I, no millennium. That's what they believe. There's no real millennium, and they say this. After Christ came, Satan is bound. He can't stop the gospel from going forth, and he hasn't. And the rest of this is allegorical. It's not reality. We're in the kingdom age now, and when it's over, Christ will come. Now, I have several problems with that. First of all, for me personally, I can't speak for you. If this is the kingdom age, I'm bummed. I was really expecting way more than this. Secondly, if Satan is bound now, his chain is way too long. You know, I, I don't see that anywhere when I look around that he's bound. And, and, you know, if this is the kingdom, the only thing that's left is the second resurrection to damnation. That's all that there is ahead of us. You know, there's no rapture. Uh, there's no first resurrection. There's no kingdom. Um, and, and to me, that's depressing. So that's a, that's a wrong view. If you know somebody who's on mill, don't listen to them. Just say, ah, mill. Um, there's another position, the preterist, the post mill. What they say is Christ comes after the kingdom is established. That's what they do that there, we need to get Christian presidents, Christian prime ministers in, in Russia, Christian leaders around the world. The church has to be ordained everywhere, and the whole world has to be converted. And then once that happens, Gary North and his ilk and the Reconstructionists, once that happens, then Christ can come. I, that's almost more depressing than the other one. You know, look, some of that was bred into the American culture by Jonathan Edwards 
Jonathan Edwards becomes the father of American post-millennialism because he watched Whitfield preach. Whitfield traveled from England to the United States 13 times across the Atlantic on boats. Sometimes they hated him on the boat, one, one trip across two boats. By the time he got to Atlanta, everybody on both boats was born again. Um, you know, he preached up and down the eastern seaboard. Um, one of the last times he preached, he would preach to 30, 40, 50, they estimate sometimes over 60,000 people. One of the last days in his life, he woke up in the morning, he just said, I would rather burn out than rust out. You ever heard that? That's from Whitfield. And they said he went to speak. There were over 20,000 people. He started to talk. You couldn't hear him. He said, let me wait for divine assistance. And he bowed his head and he stood there and prayed. And when he started to speak, everybody could hear him. Well, when he preached up through the New England colonies, they said at Harvard, 93 out of every 100 students gave their lives to Christ. Those became, those 1740s, by 1776, many of them were framers of the Constitution and Declaration of Independence and so forth. So he had a profound effect. He would collect money for African-American children in orphanages everywhere he preached. And uh, Ben Franklin became friends with him here in Philadelphia. And Ben Franklin would go listen to him when he was here because he said, he said I could, he was on the courthouse steps down on Market Street. I could hear him a half mile away. Somebody said to Franklin, why do you always go listen to Whitfield? You don't believe what he preaches. He said, I don't go to listen to him because I believe what he preaches. I go to listen to him because he believes what he preaches. And he said the thing that bothered him the most is he said is after he preached and people were saved, at the end his appeal for the orphanages was so profound and so convicting, I always gave him money. So Franklin said, one time I determined I ain't taking any money with. He ain't getting in my pocket again. And he said, I stood there and listened to that appeal. I was so convicted I borrowed money from a friend to give it to him <laughs> and had to pay him back. They said in Philadelphia for a number of years, all the bars were closed. He didn't preach against alcohol. They said windows were open. There were no screens or, you know, air conditioning. Windows were open. You could hear people singing hymns and so forth. All this. Well, Jonathan Edwards watched all of this. And it was so profound to see 30, 40, 50,000 people gathered, multitudes getting saved in his own church. It grew by 300 people one year. Jonathan Edwards said, this has got to be the beginning of the millennium. This is going to spread around the world. This is not going to stop here. Because it was happening in Ireland and England here. No, obviously, wow, was he wrong. So this whole position that the world's got to get saved first before Jesus comes is wrong. Jesus said, narrow is the way that leads to eternal life. Few there be that find it. Broad is the way that leads to destruction. Many there be that go thereon. Tells us in Revelation, multitudes, nations, kindreds, and tongues marvel after the beast whose names are not written in the Lamb's book of life. So this view, look, contradicts everything the scripture says about the last days, every warning, that it would be like the days of Noah, filled with violence and so forth that Jesus said things would wax worse and worse. Um, he said that iniquity would abound and the love of many would grow cold. First Timothy chapter 4 tells us that doctrines of demons will plague the world in the last days. Second Timothy 3 talks about men that are lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God, haters of their own family, their parents, hold a form of religion, deny the power of it. 
Second Peter and tells us in chapter 2 about the false teachers and so forth that will come in the last days. And both of these systems, post-mill, on-mill, they do away with Israel. They do away with Israel. They just get rid of Israel. These are unsubstantiated points of view. There's no reality. There's no scripture under them. There's no reality. The third view is pre-mill. That's called the correct view. That's the view that you should have. That a thousand years is a thousand years. Now, it's a little bit tricky. You You have to think. Because what we believe is that a thousand years means a thousand years. He says that six times. You know, look, anywhere in the book of Revelation, when anything's given to us in thousands, it's literal. 144,000 are sealed. Literal. It tells us there'll be 1,260 days. Those are literal days. Tells us in chapter 11 that in the great earthquake in Jerusalem, 7,000. That's literal die in an earthquake. When you go through the Bible, 40 days, 40 nights, literal. 40 years, literal. 70 years of captivity for the Jews in Babylon, literal. Three and a half years, literal. Seven years, literal. 42 months, literal. Jesus will rise on the third day, literal. There isn't anything at all that indicates that a thousand years is symbolic. It says it this many times because, you know, it's almost like Mr. Rogers or Sesame Street. All right, children, a thousand. Let's say it again, a thousand. Can you say three? A thousand. Can you say four? A thousand. Can you, you know, you know, it's almost like if I say it enough times, maybe it will make an impression. And yet you see how crazy people are with their views of this issue. If there's no kingdom, there's no end. Satan is one. If Jesus doesn't set up a kingdom at the end of all this, all the verses are unfulfilled. All the promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are unfulfilled. The promises to David that someone would sit on the throne forever, unfulfilled. All of this gone. No, there is a kingdom coming. This world is looking in all of the wrong places. It isn't wrong to want peace, to want equity, to see prejudice gone, to see war gone and hatred gone, immorality gone. Evolution gone. You know, it isn't wrong to see, want to see any of that, but the only way that will come is when the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords comes. And he's going to set up this kingdom that he taught us. Look, when you pray, Jesus said, pray this way. Our Father, which is remarkable, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. The first appeal is, thy kingdom come Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, is Jesus teaching us to pray for something we can never get? It says fathers shouldn't provoke their children to wrath. They shouldn't. He's not putting a carrot in front of us and teasing with us, teasing us with it. It's never going to happen. He says, no, this needs to be your prayer. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. Because as we look at it here, we're going to understand why. This is the heart of Christ. This kingdom will come for a thousand years. Next week, we'll get more time to look 
at the remarkable things about this kingdom. And it's remarkable to me that people are saying it's not real. Look, Jesus, when he rose from the dead, spent 40 days with his disciples talking to them about the things relative to the kingdom of God and showing himself to them in the resurrection with many infallible proofs. And then when he tells them, wait into Jerusalem till you receive the promise of the Father, they say, ah, the promise of the Father. You know, is this when God's going to restore the kingdom to Israel? What? They just listened to him for 40 days. Their understanding had been open, talking about the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. So he must have talked to them about this millennial reign. And they said, is this when he's going to do it? He said, no. He didn't say, oy vey, where do you guys get this stuff? No, he said, it's not for you to know the times and the seasons. There are times and seasons for the kingdom to be established. It's not for you. You don't have to know everything. But you wait here till you receive power. Be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth. So this is a reality. Jesus taught us to pray about it. We read about it. Look, the church... The church has gone in so many different directions with so many different things. You know, do we embrace the system of the world so that we become relevant to our culture and the day we live in? Look, to me, I want to back up. I want to know what the early church had to say about some of these things. Um, First century, and you can dig these things up. By the way, if you want the standard work on eschatology, you get the book by Pentecost, Things to Come. covers everything. I'll, I'll teach at a pastor's conference. I share this, and they say, where did you get that stuff? I said, in a book. You never heard of a book. You're online where you think everything is. There's books are, you know. This is not your Bible. This is your Bible, you know. And uh, if there's a solar flare, this ain't going to go out. You got to have a book. The first century people that supported the thousand-year reign, Andrew, Peter, Philip, Thomas, James, John, Matthew, John the Presbyter, all these are cited by Papias, who according to Irenaeus was one of John's hearers and an intimate with Polycarp. It says, the disciples of Jesus did hold the Jewish view of the Messianic reign and kingdom. Clement of Rome held that view. Barnabas, Hemus, uh, Ignatius, Tertullian, Polycarp, uh, Papias, second century, Justin Martyr, Hegippus, I can never say it, Hegisippus, Hegisippus. Who would name their kid that anyway? (laughs) Tatian, Irenaeus, Hippolytus, um, first 200 years, listen, first 200 years, right after Jesus, the apostles, first 200 years of church history, not a single voice is raised to challenge the idea of a thousand-year reign on earth. They were all chilliest. They all believed in the millennium. It wasn't until the third century when Oregon tried to make it, you know, symbolic instead of real when there started to be another voice in the church all of these things were put before us not a single 
voice was raised to challenge it. Papias, 80 to 163, said, in another place, Papias declares, there will be a millennium after the resurrection of the dead when the personal reign of Christ will be established on the earth. Uh, Commodius, 250 AD, says, they shall come also who overcame cruel martyrdom under the Antichrist, they themselves shall live for the whole time. But from the thousand years, God will destroy all evils. Nepos said this, um, the first resurrection, the kingdom of Christ, was to be upon the earth for a thousand years and the saints to reign with him. Lactanatius in Italy, 24300, says about the same time also the prince of devils, who is the contriver of all evils, shall be bound with chains, shall be imprisoned during the thousand years of heavenly rule. One of the great recording of a, a conversation between Justin Martyr, who was 100 to 168, with a rabbi named Trifo. Trifo asked, do you believe that this place, Jerusalem, shall be rebuilt and your people be congregated and rejoice with Messiah and the patriarchs and the prophets? This question Justin answered, saying, I confess to you before that I and many others besides do believe, as you well know, that this shall be. On the other hand, I have also signified to you that many who are not of the pure, pious faith of Christians do not confess this. They are called Christians indeed, but they are godless, impious heretics because they teach doctrines that in every respect are blasphemous, atheistic, and foolish. They do not confess, but dare to blaspheme the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and say there is no resurrection from the dead, but the dead souls are received into heaven. Do not imagine that these are Christians, but I and others who are orthodox on all points know that there will be a resurrection from the dead and a thousand years in Jerusalem, built again, broadened and adorned, as the prophet Isaiah and Ezekiel and others declared. A certain man among us, this is great, listen, a certain man among us of the name of John, one of the apostles of Christ, in a revelation which he had, prophesied that those who are faithful to our Messiah would accomplish a thousand years in Jerusalem. And after that, the general, so to speak concisely, the final resurrection and judgment would take place. One of the guys that hangs out with us, whose name is John. I like that. Um, Irenaeus, Bishop of Lyons, 130-200, talks about the fact that there will be the times of the kingdom that is the rest, the hallowed seventh day, the last period of a thousand years after 6,000 years. Tertullian, one of the church fathers from North Africa, we confess that a kingdom is promised to us upon the earth, although before heaven, only in another state of existence, inasmuch as it will be after the resurrection for a thousand years in the divinely built city of Jerusalem. Those are the church fathers, the first 200 years, not a contesting opinion. Now, people who have studied what they had to say, 
Philip Schaff, uh, if you have his church history. I asked a friend of mine who lived on the West Coast, what's a good, you know, what's just something good to read on church history? I'm thank God that Dave Hunt said to me, get Broad, Broadband's book, the, the Pilgrim Church. That's one volume. It's incredible. My other friend said, I'll send some to you. He sends me 31 volumes by Schaff on church history, which I ain't ever going to read. It would take me the church history to read that many volumes on church history. But Philip Schaff, the great church historian, says, the most striking point in the eschatology of the Anandacene age is a prominent Chileism, or, or those who believe in the millennium. That is the belief of a visible reign of Christ in glory on the earth with the risen saints for a thousand years before the general resurrection and judgment. It was indeed not the doctrine of the church that was embodied in a creed, but widely it was the current opinion of the most distinguished teachers. One of the great scholars of patristic literature, Dr. Adolf Harnack, who Encyclopedia Britannica asked to write for them on the millennium. He said, Faith in the nearness of Christ's second advent and the establishment of his reign of glory on the earth was undoubtedly a strong point in the primitive Christian church. He mentions the fact that this faith was widely prevalent among the early Christians. Harnack says the doctrine of Christ's second advent and the kingdom appears so early that it might be questioned whether it ought to be regarded as an essential part of the Christian religion. The Dr. Dorner, a German scholar, states that the opening centuries of our age were predominantly eschatological, means the study of prophecy and owning those things. Um, Ellis, in his Hours of Revelation, says all primitive expositors, all, except Oregon, and a few who rejected the book of Revelation were chilliest. They believed in a thousand years. Um, Joseph Mead, a splendid godly scholar, 17th century, says Chileism was the general belief of all Orthodox Christians in the age immediately following the apostles. None were known to deny it but heretics who denied the resurrection. Chillingsworth declares in his work, the premillennialism was a doctrine believed and taught by the most eminent fathers of the age next to the apostles, and none of that age condemned it. And Norm Geisler, who was a personal friend of mine, says, in church history, Chileism is so distinctly and prominently mentioned that we do not hesitate regarding it as the general belief of that age. Sorry. You all right, everybody? If some of you are like, oh, I feel like this sermon's a thousand years long. <laughs> Look, that's important to have on tape. It's important for you to listen to. It's important for you because you and I are looking forward to this kingdom. It is a real kingdom. It was owned by those who walked with Christ, those who listened to the apostles. It was unanimous in the early church until Oregon started to treat it as symbolism or something else. There was no doubt about it. Look, more important, okay, than what the church father said, one of the scholars I read said, in the Old Testament, there's 1,845 references 
to the Messiah ruling the world from Jerusalem in 17 books. 1,845 references in the Old Testament to this scene, Christ ruling in Jerusalem. The New Testament, 318 references about Christ's return, 216 different chapters, 23 of the 27 books. Broadest subject in the New Testament, the return of Christ. Broadest subject in the New Testament. He says that here. Shane the great dragon, the old serpent who is the devil and the Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and put a seal upon him, over him were sealed, that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years should be fulfilled. After that, he's loosed for a little season. It says right here, he is the deceiver of the nations. Again, we look at what's going on all around. Look what's going on all around us in the world today. You know, with these mobile devices. You know, which so much electronic gossip takes place there. So many people putting each other down. So many people who will never get a microphone who think that what they have to say is so important they have to blast it all over the internet. There's people in in the church being mean to each other racially and politically, and it's insane. Because it used to be, you know. Pornography it used to be things unclean. It used to be that access to this stuff coming. Now it's really turned to hatred and division. And and Satan is a liar and a murderer from the beginning. He's you know principalities and powers are behind the steering wheel of this present culture and this present world. And it's about hatred and it's about division. And it says right here he's the one who deceives the whole world. Every smarty pants that owns some big tech company that they think they know better than than we do about what we need to hear, I don't need them thinking for me. I have more fun planting tomatoes in my garden than being on their stupid device. You know, I don't need them to think for me. You know, you have some of these people, you know, Bill Gates telling us what we need to do medically. I'm thinking, you're a techie. When you need brain surgery, get Elon Musk to do it, if you guys are so smart. You know. There is a kingdom that's being placed before us here in remarkable ways. Um, so many next week, we'll, we'll get to much more of this. Uh, we're running out of time. I'm going to read this to you. This is Isaiah 35. And look, I think it's important. He says this, The wilderness and the solitary place shall be glad for them. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like a rose. Of course, when Jesus comes, creation is turned back around again to what it should be. So the desert will blossom like a rose. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice even with joy and with singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given unto it. The excellency of Carmel and Sharon they shall see the glory of the Lord and the excellency of our God. Listen to what he says. Strengthen ye the weak hands and confirm the feeble knees. You're worn out today. You're running on empty. You feel like you only got fuel in the tank. You're just tired of the whole thing. Well, this is what God Almighty says. He says, strengthen ye the weak hands. Confirm the feeble knees. 
Say to them that are of a fearful heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, even God with a recompense, and he will come and he will save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped, then shall the lame man leap as a heart, the tongue of the dumb shall sing, for in the wilderness shall waters break out, and streams in the desert, and the parched ground shall become a pool, and the thirsty land springs of water, and the habitation of dragons there where each one lay, there will be grass and reeds and rushes, and a highway shall be there, and a way it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall be for those, the wayfaring men, though fools shall not err therein. No lion shall be there, nor any ravenous beast shall go up thereon. It shall not be found there. But the redeemed shall walk therein, and the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with songs of everlasting joy upon their heads, they shall obtain joy and gladness and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. That's the kingdom. That's what's ahead of us. So if, you're, if, you're, if, you're, if your hands are weak, if your knees are buckling, if you're fearful, and look, sometimes fear is not a bad thing. That's why you stop at a red light. That's why you get Blue Cross and Blue Shield. Fear is not necessarily a bad thing, but it shouldn't torment us. We have faith. We see beyond this. We're Christians. And we have a hope. There's a kingdom coming. And all of this mess is going to be straightened out. There is a kingdom coming. And for you this week, if you're shot, you're worn out, you think... You know, the, old te- the, the, the New Testament, the, the apostles, the first century, you know, they were being martyred in Roman Colosseums, but they were holding on to this kingdom that was coming. How much more should we do that? We're, we're right up against the end of the, the deal here. It's close to us. How far away is the millennial kingdom today? I don't know. It could be seven years in a day. If we get raptured today. Could be seven years away, the inauguration of this kingdom. Could be eight years away. Realize how close we are. We're closer than any generation of the church that's ever lived. If you're brokenhearted, you're worn out, the Bible enjoins you. You know, there's a blessing for those who read and hear and keep these things. Look at God's kingdom. Look at what's coming. Realize why every day we should pray, Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What a hope we have. I don't care if the world thinks I'm out of my mind. I'm out of my mind for Jesus. I am crazy about Jesus. You you know, the world can be crazy about what it wants to be crazy about, but what I'm crazy about is filled with hope. It's forecasting something that the world is longing for and won't see without the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And Isaiah says, when your hearts are cast down, when you need strengthening, When you feel feeble, remember he's coming. The wilderness is going to blossom. The desert is going to bring forth the flowers. Streams are going to be everywhere. A highway that leads up to Jerusalem for the redeemed is going to be. And we're going to come there with everlasting joy upon our heads. And sorrow and sighing is going to flee away. Flee away. If you don't know this God, you're welcome to come. We're going to sing a last song. We'd encourage you to come up and pray with us. We'd love to introduce you to our Savior, Jesus Christ. We'd love to give you a copy of the scripture to take with you.
and talk to you about the world we're living in. Let's stand. We'll sing this last song together. But for those of us, what a great time just to, to turn back to the Lord and say, Lord, I, I so easily get things out of perspective. I so easily forget where we are in this journey. I, I so easily, I do too, just get caught up with everything going, going on around us. And yet we have hold of something. It's, it says it's an anchor for our soul, the hope that we have. Father, I know you've overheard we put these things before you. And Lord, this goes on and on and on and on for a thousand years, Lord. And it's just the warm-up for greater things. So, Lord, give us wisdom as we look into these things. Let us, Lord, piece together, Lord, our, our perceptions of this time. Let it be rich and sweet to us, Lord. Let us pray with new fervency, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, Lord. Let it have new power, a new thirst in our lives as we seek you. And we do believe, Lord, as we ask these things. In fact, we're praying according to your will, and you said we could have the petitions that we ask when we pray that way, Lord. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. We pray in your name. Amen.